this quote that she said stuck with me and it was like, no one will provide better agency or advocacy better than myself. What's up, standouts? It's Yolanda, and welcome to the first episode of my show. Woohoo! I'm interviewing my friend, Mickey Reynolds, who is the executive director of a community development nonprofit called Grid 110. In this episode, we talk about how she used Twitter to help her land a job with a dream company. We also talk about what weightlifting means to her. And then we also talk about the steps she took to figure out the type of job she wanted after being laid off from a job she had been at for over six years. This is a really fun, cool conversation. We recorded this episode in not the best location, so please forgive me that the audio quality isn't better. And now, without further ado, let's start the show. My name is Nikki Reynolds. Uh, I am a Los Angeles-based nonprofit educational community developer and have recently landed in working uh, for a nonprofit that I co-founded a few years ago, supporting startups and founders here in downtown Los Angeles. I think that's the great thing about what I've seen in the past few years is that there are pockets of kind of tech startup entrepreneurial communities here in LA and everybody thinks everything is on the west side. Companies like Snapchat have definitely established that. But there are definitely pockets of communities, whether it's in Culver City, downtown LA is growing, Pasadena has been, you know, very strong in that area for a while. And so I think that people can live in different areas and hopefully find something accessible to them, right? And I think that's been the work that I've been doing for the past three plus years now has been to bring resources and community to where people actually are so that they don't feel like they have to go out of their way to, to find something that interests them. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your early years? You grew up in LA. No, Bay Area. Yeah. So I was born in Santa Barbara, lived there for five years, and then my family moved to the Bay Area and I lived there high school and then left um, to come down to LA for college. So okay. did a little bit of everything. I was the overachieving kid. Um, my mom's Japanese and so she's not traditional tiger mom, but it was always like, I want you to do everything. I want you to get into really good school. My dad was in the Navy and then went into sales and he was kind of like, do whatever makes you happy. And I think he was kind of a hippie in his own right. Neither of my parents went to college. And so the expectations for me more heavily on my mom's side was like, do everything that you can be a well-rounded student, get straight A's. My dad was like, if you want to travel the world, that's totally fine. So I had very supportive parents in that sense. I played sports all growing up and sports was like definitely defining in terms of characteristics for myself, hard work, teamwork, discipline. I'm just enjoying kind of life. Even though I was like the shy, quiet kid, I ended up being senior class president um, my senior year of college or high school. So yeah, kind of did a little bit of everything. What sports did you play? Um, I played primarily basketball, fourth grade to high school. And I was actually telling my friend uh, this yesterday, I tore my ACL my junior year of high school and was able to have surgery, rehab it, and come back. And was like, comeback player of the year for my senior year of high school. They tried to put me at point guard, but I was terrible. So it was usually shooting guard and I wasn't great at that. <laughs> but I am an excellent passer. I like to make other people shine. So if I can help you in any way, that's kind of think where that has come from is like being the assist maker. When you graduated from high school, what did you think you wanted to do? I honestly had no idea. I like, I think my head went in a bunch of different directions. I went from wanting to be a writer and like a published author when I was, I used to write and read a lot to maybe wanting to be a lawyer. And I think it was just, you don't know what you don't know. And so you have to get out into the world and experience that. And you only know the things that you hear about or like what people, the professions that people have. And I knew I didn't want to go to medical school, although I thought about like sports medicine at one point. I thought that would be cool to be around athletes. And I thought that some kind of career path for me would be like going to law school, being a lawyer, like that just seemed like a thing that people did. But to be honest, I didn't I didn't have a declared major. Um, all I knew was that I was going to the school of my dreams, which is UCLA, and I was going to figure it out at some point. And Why was UCLA the school of your dreams? It, uh, so I, when I was applying for colleges, um, I knew that I probably wanted to get out of the Bay Area. So um, I, I just wanted to experience like go somewhere different. Um, and for me, when I visited UCLA, the campus, it was just everything that I wanted. And it was like that well-rounded experience of academics, athletics. Um, people just look like 
they were beautiful people on campus and they, they were so involved in all these different extracurricular activities and doing all these really great things. And I think it was the name more so than anything was like something that resonated with my family as well. I got into Berkeley also. It was deferred to spring semester and my dad really wanted me to go to Berkeley to stay close to home. And I was like, no, I think I'm ready to go, you know, live on my own for a little bit. What did you major in? Like three different things. <laughs> So I think I started undeclared and, you know, as most people do, you're probably going to change your major. I think it's like 2.3 times you change your major in in college. So I started undeclared and then the summer uh, after my freshman year, I took a marketing class, like a marketing 101 class at a JC. Like, oh, this is awesome. I love this. You said it doesn't have practical majors. They don't have, they have a business economics program, but it's very like theoretical. So UCLA, very research-based school. And so I thought, I was like, oh, marketing sounds really awesome. It's so funny because because my career has kind of been interlaced in and out of marketing, even though I've kind of like not really been drawn to it. People say that I'm good at it, but I don't know that I necessarily enjoy it. I was like, okay, I need a plan B for that. I can't do that. I don't really want to do this biz econ thing because that just looks like graphs and charts and math. Another summer I took intro to psychology class, was fascinated by it. I love how people think and even just learning kind of like the science behind it. So I declared psychology at UCLA, which is one of the harder majors for that kind of like, it's a very science space, like life science type of course at UCLA. So I was taking really hard statistic classes, really hard calculus classes, and I wasn't sure if the science that was more for me. It was very much more of like a writing type of person. And so at that point, I think I was a junior. I was like, how do I get out of college in four years? I looked and sociology seemed to be all of the kind of prerequisites overlap, even though I could have taken the easier classes for sociology. And I started taking some classes and there's sociology of everything, like history, immigration, gender. I took some of the most fascinating classes at UCLA and it allowed me to kind of explore like just different like trends and themes and cultures and people and really enjoyed that. So what was your favorite sociology course? Probably sociology of gender. We had to do a group project where kind of like the social constructs of what people think gender is. Our group was four girls and one guy. And the group project was that we had to dress as the opposite sex, go out into public and pass. So it's like you're thinking about how do I look, mannerisms, talking, all of those things that we think make up that other gender and us trying to mimic those things and trying to pass as it. So we're, you know, 20-year-old women and we end up looking like 13-year-old boys that are just like baggy clothes and backwards hats and like trying to draw on like facial hair or something. And then we had the one guy and this was the really interesting thing about him. So he was taller. I think he was Armenian. He was very hairy. So it was actually really hard for him to try and dress as a woman in the past. We went out to Third Street Promenade and he just looked like he was dressing up for Halloween. And it was like, he was not passing at all. But the thing that we noticed was that we were not really getting stared and we kind of tried to break up and stuff, um, but he was. And we actually started getting a little concerned for his safety. And so we were kind of keeping a close eye on him just to make sure that because of his appearance, you know, that he wasn't going to get judged or like things were going to happen to him, which is sad that we had to, you know, think about that and still do, you know, like this is 15 years later and we're still facing those types of issues of discrimination and not accepting people. Yeah, how did he take it? Um, I think he felt really uncomfortable and I think it was just, it was, he did his best, but it's hard when you're just like, I don't look like a feminine or the construct of a feminine woman in order to pass as one. Did you work during college? Yes. Um, so I, the first two years, it was kind of just part-time jobs. I actually got a job working at Poly Pavilion in concessions because it was the way that I could get in to see basketball games for free. So I'd work at all the men's basketball games. It was prior to the game through halftime. And then we could go like, grab our soda and a hot dog and go find an MDC and oh, watch nice. the rest of the game. So I did that for two years. And then the summer times, I was working at Champ Sport. I was able to transfer from where I was working back home to the Beverly Center here. And so I was like out working off campus. I had a reason to have a car, you know, in LA for the the first time. Lots of celebrities came through. So it was an interesting experience then. But I was working a lot. I was working 30 hours a week. And then my final year, I was an RA. Then why did you work so many hours? I think partially it was my parents were paying for my tuition and I was paying for everything else. And so wanting to spending money and like all of that kind of stuff. And it was also for me, I think just I had been working since I was like 13 in like unofficial capacities, kind of getting paid cash on the table. And it was just something that I just knew to make my own money to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. You graduate on time in four years. Yeah, almost on time. So I I actually had a medical reason that I had to drop out my spring quarter of my freshman year. Um, I had to have surgery. And so the recovery time was six weeks and they're like, you're not going to be able to go back to school. So we made the decision spring break. I was going to drop out that quarter. 
and then come back. Um, and so I literally had like an extra quarter and like one class I had to finish over the summertime. But it was one of my favorite classes that I took at UCLA. And it was a Asian American studies class on mixed race. Um, and so I'm half Japanese, half white. Mm-hmm. And so it going to UCLA was actually the first time that I encountered other people that were kind of like mixed race. And even growing up, um, I went to really diverse uh, Catholic schools where I just saw all different colors and races and never really identified like one versus the other. But it was the first time that I think I saw people that kind of looked like me. Like a lot of people think that I look Hawaiian or like I get Mexican a lot too. Um, but it was really cool seeing people that are like a little, like you can't quite tell what they are, but you look in your eyes and you're like, I think you're half Asian too. I think you're just like me. And they had like a, a Hapa club, which is for like, you know, mixed Asian people. Um, and so it was like, kind of like this identity of myself was starting to form at that time of I never really identified as Japanese or white. I always kind of identified as like a hybrid of the two of being mixed. Um, and so it was cool to see that there were studies being done and research being done and, you know, people that there was this growing community of people that are like multicultural, multiracial. What, what was one thing that you remember about that class that really helped you to better understand yourself? Yeah, I think uh, we had a final project that we had to do, and it could be in any form. It could be visual, written, um, art, like just something that kind of encompassed all that we had learned in terms of our own identity. Within, and so I kind of wrote this short story of an experience that I had with my mom, her raising me with Japanese like values and traditions and like words and things like that, but not. I never really felt that there was a Japanese community that I belonged to. I didn't have Japanese friends. Um, my friends growing up were like Filipino and Mexican, like just, you know, mixed. Um, but it allowed me to kind of explore some of the identity issues that I had gone through of not being enough mm-hmm. of one or the other. I remember having a Filipino boyfriend in high school and his mom, when she would introduce me, she would say, you know, this is Nikki. She's going to UCLA and she was like an honor student, this and that. And it was like, it was like my resume of things, right? Because that's kind of what Asian parents do. Um, and I always wondered if I was Asian enough in terms of how I looked. And, you know, because even though I wasn't Filipino, like if I had been like full Japanese, would that have been different or something? So it's always something. And even to this day, I think of um, for various reasons, like it's always a question that I think comes up with a lot of people. It's like, am I enough? Um, self-doubt kind of creeps in and things like that, um, especially with whether it's identity or figuring out where you belong or what you're doing. And yeah, so it was an interesting kind of opportunity to explore that. So you graduate UCLA. What what did you do? So I knew that I didn't, I wasn't ready to get a full-time job just yet, um, but I knew that I had to work. And so uh, through the summertime, I had this one class that I had to take. So I was taking this one class and I was working two kind of part-time jobs. I got a paid internship at an online advertising agency um, in the Palisades. And then the complete opposite side of town, I got a marketing coordinator job at uh, Sharky's, the bar in Hermosa Beach. Okay. And it was basically, it, this was my introduction to email collection and newsletters and getting people to come back with different types of promos and things like that. So I was working like... How did you get those? Craigslist. Craigslist is a great way to get yeah. jobs. It is. And especially I think like the, whether internships or hourly types of roles and things like that. Yeah, it was Craigslist. And I remember I got the online advertising uh, agency one. It was like, we did a group interview, 10 of us or so. I remember one of the questions that they asked us is if you had $100,000 or $500,000 to spend in one day, like what would you do? And I was like, I would buy courtside seats to the Lakers game and the, bo- the bosses who were interviewing were all Lakers fans. So Did I just, you know that? I didn't. Uh-huh. So I think that I just like, I just, me sports, mm-hmm. that's also how I sometimes relate to, to men. And so I did that through the end of the year and I started interviewing uh, at places and kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. It was a good... Did you know what that, could that internship have turned into a job? It could have, yeah. Did you not want it to? Um, I think that I was, you know, was getting pay increases there, became like the lead intern, was training other interns. Um, I think I, at some point, had started looking for something a little bit different. And I, I knew, the one thing that I knew coming out of, of college was that I wanted to work in digital and online. Like, Napster was really big when I went to college. and High-speed internet was just becoming a thing. And I, I knew that this was something going to be really special. And that was something that I wanted to be a part of. I was looking for something um, different, um, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. My boss at the uh, online advertising agency used to work for MGM Studios. 
Texas. Mm-hmm. And he and his business partner there had basically created MGM online and the website and like that whole division that they had. And he was like, if you're looking for something like full-time, like something with like some real potential, he's like, my partner is hiring an assistant. I went and I interviewed, we hit it off really well, um, but he had interviewed somebody right before me that he liked just a little bit better and she had a little bit more experience um, as an assistant. And so they went with her. And then right after the holidays, they reached back out. They're like, hey, we just want to let you know what happened. Went with somebody else. But we had another opening and we were kind of waiting to see what was going to happen with that because I think they were firing this other girl. But the guy whose position I was applying for to be his assistant, his boss. So the chief information officer and the two senior vice presidents under him that basically ran the entire IT and tech division for MGM were hiring for their executive assistant. Mm -hmm. And so they ended up letting that one go and I interviewed for it and I got it. So I never really thought of like being in a corporate environment. Uh, I always thought like, oh, really cool, like movie studio. That would be really fun. And it was interesting to, to be in like the, the IT, like tech area. But I learned so much just really sitting at the top with those three executives. Something that you said earlier that yeah. I want to ask you about. You were talking to your boss at the other company and he was telling you about MGM yep. and he was like, well, if you are looking for something else, how were you yeah. able to develop I can't remember exactly how it came about, but I think the fact that I was an intern and I was hourly and they, I was kind of like capped. And then I think they knew all the kind of jobs that I've had, just overachiever mentality and I get bored really easily. I just like to take on more and more and more work and at some point kind of max out and there isn't any more to give you. You either say something about it or people will recognize and acknowledge that. I think I've been really fortunate to be around people that recognize and acknowledge that because I think I'm a little bit more on the like shy, apprehensive side mm-hmm. where I might not have felt comfortable with that. But I think it's like because I knew it was an internship, because I knew it's like this isn't going to be a forever thing. And I think they recognize that like I think you're a talented person and like we'd love to help you grow in any way that we can. So if it's not here, like if there are other opportunities, like we'd love to kind of explore, help you explore those. And so you always wonder about that, especially when um, you talk to younger people. Like you have this belief that people are just going to recognize and reward you, mm-hmm. but sometimes you have to like yep. go out and take it. Our uh, our mutual friend Anastasia mm-hmm. actually wrote a Medium post uh, earlier this year. And she was talking about um, power moves that she had kind of made in her career to get her to where she is right now. And this quote that she said stuck with me. And it was like, no one will provide better agency or advocacy better than myself. Okay. So you worked in it. MGM. MGM mm-hmm. as an executive assistant. Yep. What did you enjoy about that job? I think I enjoyed working around a lot of people. Um, so the, and kind of being like the go-to person for a lot of different things. I mean, I was the gatekeeper for three senior executive yeah. schedules and it was really cool. Um, I had one, actually, I think she's the only technically female boss that I've ever had. I've only ever had male bosses. And it was really interesting to see her. Um, she was a single parent, had two teenage boys and she made sure that I had on her schedule whenever they had volleyball games, she was there. She was, you know, as busy as she was, as much as she traveled, like that was a priority for her. And that was one of the first times I think I'd seen in the professional world, um, outside of my own mother, of a woman being able to be successful in business. And she was, uh, she was also Asian. And she was just like this fierce little woman that everybody kind of was scared of, but also respected at the same time. But I think it was like, it was working in entertainment, but like on the fringe of entertainment. And so working with the tech teams and, and kind of understanding the whole world of like databases and servers and application support and websites. And that's what really uh, made me love, I think, that space and wanting to delve more deeper into that side of entertainment. What skills did you have to develop in order to be good at? Um, so managing three different people's schedules, trying to be one step ahead of all of them. Um, kind was of, there a hierarchy of yes. who was most important? There, so there were three of them. There was the chief information officer, and under him were two senior vice presidents. One of the senior vice presidents was the female that I mentioned. She was probably the one that needed the most support because she had a larger team and she was traveling a lot. The other senior vice president, super low-key, very hands-off. And then the CIO, also like very low-key. And so it was trying to anticipate their needs and their different styles and how they like things. Um, managing all of their travel. So it's 
multitasking like a mother and working with all of like their different teams to ensure the communication was distributed. I had to try to learn Microsoft Project because they would have quarterly project reviews mm-hmm. and they would all submit their project plans to me and then I had to somehow try and figure out how to consolidate them into like one thing. How do you go about figuring things? So I think I tried asking somebody for help at one point and because we have the IT team there, it's like, hey, you know how to use this, right? Can you help me with this? And knowing when to ask for help at some point, but sometimes it's just kind of like getting in there. Is there something that you did there that you were really proud of? It was really feeling like I was indisposable to them and that I could anticipate those needs. And, and so the next role that I was able to take on was actually the director of online that I originally interviewed for, he had an opening. And so when he had an opportunity to open up, uh, he's like, I'd love to consider you for this if you're interested. And by that time, I'd been there for a year and a half. And they knew, like, you're 24 years old. You're ready to go on and yeah. do something new. So it's time for you to grow. But we're happy that you can grow like within this team. Okay. So you transitioned and you got to work with... The online team, yeah. Mm-hmm. What did you do there? Engaging with all the, the teams to see what they wanted to promote for that month. Um, as well as like supporting um, any of the ongoing email blasts that we were doing specifically to like a new movie release or things like that. What what did you have to develop in order to be really good at that job? So um, one of the the process kind of was we had a template and it was an HTML, CSS template that we just swapped out things every month. How many people were involved? I ended up owning it. I took it over from somebody else who was kind of working on other projects, but it was typically just myself and like a production person who would resize images for me and update if I had changes to make the copy and stuff like that. There was a point where I was like, I don't want to keep relying on this person to do these things for me. I'm just going to learn how to do this myself. And so I kind of like hacked through teaching myself HTML and CSS. just had to edit certain things in the copy. And if an image was wrong or like needed to be resized or there's something wrong with it, then I started learning Photoshop because they put the wrong image in. So like I'm going to swap it out. I was really learning on the fly how to do that. Proofreading and being really detail oriented because when you're sending out newsletters to that many people and you don't want there to be a dead link or a typo. After that, you went to Atomic? Yeah, so... In the middle of that, the company got bought by a consortium of companies that was led by Sony and some investment firms. I saw our entire department kind of diminish. And because I was probably the most inexpensive resource, they kept me on and then I just added on responsibility. I was there from age 23 to 25 and I was working with people that were predominantly 20 to 30 years older than me mm-hmm. in the IT department. And I wanted to work around people my own age and I wanted to be in an innovative team. And so I remember looking online and just around the corner was 20th Century Fox. And they had this position at this brand new startup division called Fox Atomic and they were building their team. They had their like vice president of digital in place and he was hiring his team. They're looking for a coordinator. It was essentially doing the same exact job that I was doing. This is the only time in my entire career that I've applied for a job online through an online portal, got an interview and gotten hired. Every other way has been through some unconventional method. And so it's, I think it's because it was a very similar fit and it like worked out. Did you envision like how you could do more? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, because it was a startup division, uh, the the team there had only been placed for like a couple of months and we were launching. I started, I think it was June. We were launching our website at Comic-Con the next month. So everything that we were doing was for the team to like do this big unveiling mm-hmm. of we were, we were in the process of filming the remake of Revenge of the Nerds. And that was, was a remake. There wasn't. I mean, oh, <laughs> there, there was. There was going to be. Um, and so that was going to be our coming out um, of announcing this new studio. And so fun for a multitude of reasons of startup culture and feeling being around people that are my own age, um, going to Comic Con, like having this experience, um, like the team kind of like dynamic and collaboration that happened that went into like doing that launch um, was incredible. And it was so exciting to be a part of that, like the early stages of that team and seeing it grow from there. And so that's kind of in terms of the expectations that I had of going into a team that I knew was doing something that hadn't wasn't really being done before, had really innovative thinkers behind it. Um, I knew, didn't know exactly what to expect, but, but I knew it would be completely different from anything that I'd done before. So what would you say would be a skill that you developed working? Yeah, there? so I think that's where I actually learned. So coming from MGM, I kind of got my hands into um, 
production of emails and websites and microsites and kind of how the, the internet and websites work and a little bit of like the HTML and CSS and just kind of like the basic stuff. And then when I went to Fox Atomic, it was project managing the development of this application. And so software application development, working with developers and designers and how all that works and essentially being the product manager for this application before I knew what product management was. And um, it was just, I was always been in the position of I'm somebody's lieutenant and right hand. And then it was like our director of development. And I was responsible for all the timelines and making sure everything was on track and queuing and testing um, and finding initial users and marketing and doing a little bit of everything. So wearing lots of different hats. So continuing to wear multiple hats, but really kind of diving into the space of application and software development and what that was all about. Cool. So what contributed to you leaving Fox? Yeah. So um, the director of development that I was working for at the time um, got another opportunity to join another company, company he'd actually met at Comic-Con. They were a software development company. I wasn't sure the direction, I think, that the company was going in. And I, a little foreshadowing, I guess, because the division ended up shutting down four months later. And I think I was ready to kind of jump in. I wanted to make money. I wanted to like do more things. And so this opportunity to work with this another like solely software development company, I think that's what I was really excited about. I think I was, I was done working in entertainment and I really like found my passion working in software development there and building products and online communities and things like that. So the opportunity came up and I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. So I left Fox Atomic to go to a company. It used to be called Planet White Games and it was called Nashon. At the time, it was in Orange County. It was a desktop software development company. Um, they produced a couple of like online games and then their kind of big offering was this thing called the Comic Book Creator. It allowed you to create your own comic books using templates and page layouts. And they wanted to take that desktop software completely online. And they saw what we, we had done um, building this kind of online video content blending type of application. Um, and they were like, can you do the same thing for us? Can you take what, this, what we want, and put it online? So we're like, yeah, we can do that. So what did you enjoy about that job? And what did you kind of... What skills did you need in order to be successful? Yeah, so uh, I kind of continued on with project management, and it was developing the you know, managing the projects for our website, for the application, um, working on multiple projects, uh, helping build out the team. So we had to hire new talent that was equipped with the skills that we needed to. You know, everybody, all the engineers that we had were used to building desktop software, so now we needed ones that were you know, equipped to develop in Flash and online. The company started off in Orange County and kind of hijacked it and moved it to L.A. There, there was more talent in terms of opportunity that we could hire from the talent pool is larger here in L.A. And we essentially re just rebuilt the team here okay. in L.A. And so I was with that company for six years and just kind of seeing it from where it went then to building this Flash-based comic book creator um, to realizing that nobody wants to make comic books online really so how can we make the technology that we've built for creating these different types of page templates how can we monetize off of that um and it was like well people don't necessarily want to make books but they might want to make a t-shirt or a coffee mm -hmm. mug or a cell phone case and so we transitioned it into a product customization platform we were able to develop a kind of end and solution that uh, it was on-demand printing. So you create the design, and you can that way you can kind of test out design, see what works, see what doesn't work, and the item isn't printed until somebody actually buys it. Um, and so it drastically reduces upfront costs, and it could be used by anybody from large corporations to independent T-shirt owners. It basically enabled anybody to become an e-commerce store in that sense. And so we were trying to build out kind of like a SaaS-based model of it. So it's like a shop-in-a-box type of thing where if you've got a store, you want to integrate this into it, cool, you can do that. And then we have this enterprise side where we're custom building stores and integrations for different brands and, and large clients in that way. While I'm not 
technically trained in any nature. I could fit in on almost any conversation. And a lot of times I was the one that they brought into meetings because I was the one that could say, is this something that we can do or we can't do? And actually the salespeople didn't like bringing me into meetings because I was the realistic one because I would hear what they were selling. And I'm like, we can't do that. And I was the one that was responsible essentially for all of our client deliverables. Again, just being willing to take on more and learn more, do more. So you've been there for six years. Mm -hmm. How did you know you were ready to leave? The company shut down because I came in at a transition. Everybody who had been there before me had since left. Mm -hmm. My boss at the time had also left. I felt like I had dedicated so much of myself to it. At the time that we shut down, I was the vice president of operations and I was second in command to our CEO. And so I had ticked off all the boxes in terms of like my career ladder that I wanted. You know, I got the title that I wanted, the pay that I wanted, like all of these things. And I felt like I had accomplished so much. But I had this feeling of like, I didn't really necessarily enjoy like what we were building. It was, I did it because I was like, I want to see this work. Mm -hmm. I want to see this succeed. We're so close to something here. And there was so much potential there. But I think it was like knowing when to maybe walk away. And I put all of that before me. Because I didn't want to like let my team down, like to leave before them. But I was just so invested in it that I don't, I was ready to go down like the Titanic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did. I was literally the last person on payroll to help like shut down the company. I had no idea what I wanted to do next. And it really allowed me to kind of take stock in what I enjoyed about what I was doing before and what I didn't like and what I wanted and kind of my next opportunity. What were those? I knew that I, I, I loved building. Coming from like building something online, seeing the creation of a product, seeing people use it, getting their feedback on it, iterating on it, working with dev and design teams. I love being in the thick of that and, and really enjoyed the process of it. I learned that I didn't really enjoy the services side of the industry. And so I knew that I don't think I could ever work for an agency necessarily again. It was building things for other people. I mean, there's one thing when you're building like your own platform, mm-hmm. but when you're building stores for other people, when you're building applications for other people and they have their own input and they don't listen to you or they want things done a certain way or like the timelines and schedules of managing multiple different projects at the same time. And if a developer gets sick or they quit or something happens, it's like I wanted to build something that I wholeheartedly believed in, that I was passionate about, that I was excited about. How did you take what you learned about yourself find your next job? I literally had no life outside of work, so I wasn't really going to any tech events. Mm-hmm. I also didn't feel like even though we were a startup and we were working in tech, I didn't feel like I belonged to the startup community, but I just felt like there are all these different brands and companies out there that'd be so cool to work for because they have name recognition and brand value and all of these things. And I just didn't feel like I belonged in that Mm -hmm. yet. So I found myself January 1st, 2014, unemployed for the first time in my life with no idea what I was doing next. I remember being offered a contract project and it was the pay that I wanted and it was doing exactly what I had been doing. And I was working on a back end of a financial services website and I was not excited about it at all. And I mean, the team was really cool. And again, the product. And I just, I was like, no, I don't think this is the right move for me to make. I'm gonna, I'll I'll find something. In downtown, I'm like, where do I go to meet people, connect? Couldn't find anything. And then I remember seeing, I've been a fan of General Assembly since its inception in New York. And I remember actually writing down on an Evernote, like bucket list of things I want to do was to bring General Assembly to LA. But then they came to LA. So I was like, cool, this is awesome. Went to a few things, took like a a couple, maybe free classes that they had there. And so at this time, um, I saw on Eventbrite that they were doing um, business development for startups class. Um, And at the time I was working with a friend that's kind of like an advisor to his startup and he wanted some help with business development. And I'm like, I don't really know much about that. So let me learn. And then I saw this class and then they canceled the class. At that point, I was just like, why aren't they doing more out here? And so I uh, reached out on Twitter to, uh, I was following the regional director at the time, Sarah Tilton. And I was like, oh, I want to follow like the important people that work in the places that I really admire. So I reached out to the GALA Twitter account and Sarah and I was like, hey, are you guys thinking about expanding, you know, to your offering outside of the West Side, like classes or events or anything like to the East Side, like Hollywood or downtown? And she responded back and she's like, yeah, we're actually thinking about it. What would you like to see? And I was like, I have some ideas and it's more than 140 characters. Can I email you? And she's like, yeah, absolutely. I was also working, I used to volunteer for a nonprofit called Stoked. Um, It's an action sports based mentoring program for at-risk youth. And um, it teaches surfboarding, skateboarding, and snowboarding to kids. You know, it's the, the life skills that you learn through doing hard kind of adventurous things, um, communication, teamwork, community, um, getting up when you fall down, like those types of things. I was talking to the founder. He uh, had this endowment for this really cool innovation lab that he wanted to build out in their Brooklyn office. 
And he's like, I need some programming ideas. What should I do? And I was like, what about like an entrepreneurship program? A lot of what you teach is like the foundations of entrepreneurship. And wouldn't it be cool to provide this as like a base layer of like a summer program for these kids to learn? And wouldn't it be cool to give them the foundational layer of what it means to be an entrepreneur so that if they have ideas for something, they know how to take those next steps. And so I was like, oh, GA could be a really cool partner for this. And so the email that I wrote was kind of like starting with that. And then it was also... You know, I'm based in downtown LA. I have some free time right now. Um, is there anything I can do to help you guys with your expansion? Da, 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 da. I got an email back. She's like, I love all of this. I'm forwarding this to our head of expansion mm-hmm. and uh, set up a phone call with them. And then it was just like a couple phone calls and in-person coffee chats. And then they ended up bringing me on to lead uh, the expansion for downtown LA. We started just working out of co-working spaces and running classes. Mm-hmm. A lot of people on this side of town had heard about GA and the reception that I got was really similar. They were so excited that we were bringing programming and content and classes yeah. uh, and making it more accessible to people. So yeah, that's how I went from being unemployed to employed. <laughs> Did you think at that time, like how could I position this to get hired by General Assembly? Um, I think at that point it was just like, is there an opportunity? Like uh, this is a problem that I have. Mm-hmm. Is this a problem that you're seeing also? Yeah. And it was kind of like a selfish need because I would like to see this happen here. Um, and is there anything that I can do to make this happen here? Again, it was the idea of being able to build something from the ground up. It was actually something completely foreign to me. I didn't do events ever before. That was essentially the role that I had was they're like, okay, your first job is you have to throw a party in two weeks and you have to figure out how to get people there. And here's your budget. And I just started just racking my brain of like, what, okay, what would I do? How, what's the easiest way that I can get someone to come to something, reduce the barrier of entry. They don't have to buy a ticket to something. They don't have to pay for a drink. They're coming to be associated with this cool new brand. And so what we actually ended up doing um, was the brilliant idea with one of my colleagues um, when we were trying to figure out where we're going to have this first party. And he was like, why don't you just make it a secret location? The first one went so well, they're like, okay, just keep doing this. So we did four weekly happy hours the very first month that I came on board. And so it was really cool just like learning how to build community through these like shared experiences and opportunities. And that was kind of like the foundation for that whole role. So I started at General Assembly in May of 2014. And around that time, it was just kind of like meeting the people in downtown, like where where is the community? Who's doing something? Somebody's got to be doing something. And just talking to people and being like, oh, you need to meet this person. It was just like this concentric circles of everybody pointing in all these different directions. And then ultimately the seven of us uh, that are the original co-founders of Greg 110 kind of came together right around the same time that I started at GA. And it was like, we all live or work in downtown we are invested in seeing how we can help support the community and ecosystem grow here. And we met unofficially just for like a year. And so a year later, kind of the problem that we decided that we wanted to solve was uh, space. And it was the appropriate type of space for startups things. So we're like, what if we could get building who has empty office space, who wants to attract tech and creative companies and fill it with startups. And so that was kind of like the initial idea of it. And we would do that with multiple different buildings. And maybe we'll focus each building on a different vertical. Mm-hmm. So we're like, okay, fashion tech seems to be the thing that makes sense to start with because of downtown LA and Los Angeles. Um, and then we kind of realized we can't just take an empty space and throw startups in there like they need infrastructure they need wi-fi they need you know utilities um and then we have to be able to measure progress or success or like that this is something that's viable so what we ultimately came um out with and launched in 2015 was a six-month accelerator style program and so we would kind of incubate five companies in the fashion tech space Uh, with free office space, mentoring resources, access to advisors, and get them ready for whatever that like next milestone step was for them. I wasn't as hands-on as I would have liked to have been because I think I was the only one who didn't work for myself. But it was definitely, I felt like it was hard because most of our team was working out of the space because they were running their own businesses out of the space. And so they could be there and they had face-to-face interactions with all the startups. And it was harder for me to do that. And so I think that was one of the things that I struggled with over the past two years um, was not feeling like I could devote as much time and, and effort and energy as I wanted to to it. But that's changing. Yeah. So then you decided to leave General Assembly. Yeah. Did you know that the role full-time at Grid Montana was a strong possibility? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's essentially why I left. Okay. We are a economic and community development organization first and foremost. Okay. We're a nonprofit. 
Um, and we just want to see companies succeed here mm-hmm. in downtown. We want them to graduate from our program, get off the space in downtown, hire people in downtown, you know, be successful in downtown. And so that's kind of our benchmark and measure of success. And what we've seen happen with our companies is, is doing exactly that. We now we've kind of moved away from like the formal accelerator model, still trying to kind of figure out what we're calling it. What skills are required to be successful in your job? Yeah. So I think there's uh, on the hard skills side, it's a lot of project management of, you know, and program development mm-hmm. and figuring out what is it that is worked in the past that we want to maintain moving forward with these programs, um, being able to kind of project manage anything from a new website to events that we want to do to hiring interns and like overseeing them to do certain things and then the actual program management itself, um, as well as any external facing business development, um, partnerships, you know, working with the community, um, funding, getting additional funding. And um, I think I mentioned earlier that I'm so used to being somebody's like first lieutenant and, you know, I'm just the go-to person. Like, I got you, boss. Like, whatever you need, I'm going to get it done. And this really, I never really saw this for myself, but this was the prime opportunity for me to kind of step into that like commander in chief role Mm -hmm. um, of being the one that's like figuring out the strategic vision and the program development and how are we going to raise money and like our own startup within a startup. And it's terrifying coming from something like General Assembly, brand recognition, well-funded, um, mission-based company that people who know it, love it, yeah. um, and has all the directions kind of provided for you, which is sometimes good, sometimes bad, to stepping into something where you have to define the metrics and you have to figure out how can we be a fundable entity? What are going to people going to invest in when it comes to whether it's you know corporate social responsibility divisions or grants or foundations? What is it that we're doing that is different and meaningful that they want to help support that? The opportunity is huge, but yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> So on the flip side, let's talk about flat sides. So yeah. flat sides are an aspect or a skill that you have chosen deliberately not to nurture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'd never heard that term before. I thought that was really interesting. I was like, oh, no, that's really good. Yeah, sales. I I feel like I'm really good about asking for things if it's in a partnership capacity or if it's like an in-kind thing. So mm-hmm. I have no problem reaching out to sponsors, asking for product. Um, because we're a nonprofit, it seems to be a really easy ask. Yeah. Space is not a problem for me. Um, marketing partnerships, asking for somebody to kind of spread the word about something. No qualms about doing anything. But when it comes to somebody, when it's monetarily related, I struggle with that. Corporations and um, people that are interested in getting involved with Grid 110, they kind of like leave it open to how, what are the opportunities to get involved? And so it's easy for me to talk about the one-off events um, or mentoring, or if you want to come in and do like a lunch and learn with the startups and things like that, of like the ways, the, the valuable ways um, that you could be spending your time um, with the organization. And then some people, they just want to write a check, but it's like the hardest ask for me to talk about that. It's very sensitive for me and I need to get over that. Like when you need a boost of confidence, what do you do? Probably literally by going to the gym. Um, I uh, got into kind of like weightlifting yeah. about a year ago. And it's a great stress relief. So I, I am prone to getting really bad like tension headaches and migraines. And since making uh, working out uh, a part of my like just weekly schedule, mm-hmm. have noticed that my stress levels have reduced. Mm-hmm. I'm sleeping better and feeling better about myself. Um, the other thing I would just say is just like dancing around my apartment. Do you have a go-to song? I've heard it so many times at this point, and I don't get sick of it. But Despacito. Um, you seen that little girl where her. I don't know if it's her dad or it's a parent or someone kept playing the song. She'd be like, oh, but then she would start dancing to it. What is something you're embarrassed to admit that you like? I mean, my immediate answer is terrible reality TV. It's like what's your worst? guilty pleasure. Anything Bravo, Real Housewives, like all of that nonsensical stuff. It was just kind of, it's like a fun like escape and, and from reality and like has something going on in the background. Okay, so I have this book and it's called Listography mm-hmm. and it's a book where you can kind of do a biography of yourself through lists. Okay. So, pick an odd number between 5 and 135 and I'm going to give you something to list. 21. Number 21. 
2021? Mm-hmm. Good one. The people you love the most. Oh, well, at the top of that list are my parents. Um, I consider them my lifelong heroes. I think just for a variety of different reasons. I have a handful of people that I consider my nearest and dearest, like closest friends. Um, for a long time, I uh, I kept my circle very small, and I think it was because I wasn't really meeting a lot of people. And so it was like high school best friend, a college best friend, and then through GA and just like all of the stuff that I've done in the past three years, I've just met some of the most exceptional people in my life um, who I admire, who I think of as role models, and uh, inspire and motivate me every day. Um, my dogs. I am on the fence as to whether I want to have kids or not, and I it's situational for me. I think if I'm yeah. with a person and I can see that happening yeah. like great but I'm also approaching the point where I'm like but adoption, I guess, is always an option. So for now, dogs. What type of dogs do you have? I have two. I have a Chihuahua Corgi named Darla, and I have a Black Lab mix named Baron. Squad care instead of self-care? Yeah. So who are the people that you turn to when you need help? Yeah, um, my friend Kat. So we worked at GA together. She was actually my, uh, the first kind of impression, physical in-person impression that I had of GA. She was there. And she was one of the first people because she had essentially done my role within launching GA when it first came to Santa Monica of being kind of like that audience development marketing person and she knew everybody though she kind of sat me down she's like these are all the people that I need to introduce you to these are all the mailing lists that you need to get on and since then like we just become she's one of my best friends there's just so much about her that I admire and a lot of times I'm like what would Kat do mm-hmm. um, and so she's definitely somebody that I come to and I get very objective opinions and she's not afraid to be like why do you feel that way or you need to stop saying that and it's like just being tough love with a wrapper of empathy around it. I think something you just said that it's like really important and a lot of people don't have someone like that when you said, well, she told me the people that I need to know Mm -hmm. and the list I should be a part of and a lot with finding opportunities. Yeah. It's about knowing what's out there and if you don't have anyone in your circle that knows that, then it's becomes a little bit harder. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of like how I feel like I want Grid 110 to be. Mm-hmm. So when people are trying to plug in and connect with community here, it doesn't have to be through necessarily art programs. It's just knowing what else is out here. So knowing that like Pixel Exchange is a resource, knowing that there are 10 different co-working spaces in the area, knowing who the companies are, who's hiring, um, where are the different resources that I can go to for XYZ. I'm a creative. What are the events for me? And so we want to be kind of like that hub for people that they can tap into um, where they can find whatever it is they're looking for. And a lot of that is just us imparting our knowledge and the things that we know and connecting the dots for people. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I want to do with this podcast is letting people know who else is out there. Yeah. Who is one of your possibility models? Another term that I was like, I had never heard that phrase before. And I thought it was really cool that you explained it. There are two that I think are really prominent in doing mm-hmm. things uh, that I would like to aspire to do or have thought about doing. Um, one of them is Arlen Hamilton um, mm-hmm. with Backstage Capital and raising a fund and investing in um, women and minority entrepreneurs and you know, not having coming from a traditional background at all and mm-hmm. learning how to do it and kind of, you know, um, it was definitely, I think, a hard road for her as she has definitely admitted um, on her podcast and when she's spoken. Um, but she knows she saw a gap and a need and she did something about it. And I think that um, there's just something about somebody who you can talk about change or you can actually do something about it and be that catalyst for change. And so I think she's one. And then um, Kimberly Bryant from Black Girls Code. Yeah. Who uh, I was reading up about her and her background in like electrical engineering and having the storied career. And then coming to this, the concept of this idea when her daughter was like, I want to learn how to code. Where can I go to do that? And, you know, not finding programs that were directed towards um, girls like her or even girls. And so she, again, she created it because she didn't see it. And so I feel like that's a pattern that I've seen is that if it doesn't exist, that you should create it. Um, and that's who you are. Yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of like the, the model that I follow, the people that I admire are people that see a, a gap or something that they want to change because they have they notice that as a problem for themselves and they do something about it. Yeah. If people wanted to find you and and look at your amazing <laughs> Instagram stories, I'm already telling you how to put that one out there. How should they or, or where should they? Yeah, be? I'm at Mixter on all all pretty much all social media. So M I K S T E R. It's a nickname that my grandma and my dad gave me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm.
So the name of this podcast is How She Did It. If you could go back in time and give your younger self some career advice, what would you say? I think the biggest thing for me is I don't feel like I took a lot of risks. I think I played it safe. Um, I stayed at companies and roles for longer than maybe I should have. Um, I have, I'm born and raised in California and I've never left California in terms of like living. Um, I think there are times where I wish I maybe had moved to New York or I don't necessarily have a desire to move back to the Bay Area, even though that's kind of where the hub of tech is, or even moving internationally. Um, and so I think just it's the doing the things that you're scared of, getting out of your comfort zone um, and exploring. And even if it was just like living overseas for a semester or doing more study abroad stuff or after college, um, exploring a little bit more. And so I think it's just taking those risks, um, knowing that where you think you're going to end up is not where you're going to end up. And that's totally OK. Yeah. Um, and being comfortable, I think, with that and just the the, the opportunities that you have. Things happen for a reason and things will kind of lead you in different directions. Um, and I think just learning as much as you can along the way. And there you have it. I really enjoyed chatting with Nikki. So I want to do a quick debrief on the episode and share some things that I learned. Number one, do how she is handling a loss of benefits by going from general assembly to grid 110. She's the only employee and more than likely she lost her benefits like her medical insurance, her 401k or retirement plan. And I'm sure she has options and she figured all of that out before she left. But I wish that I would have asked her about this and also whether the loss of those benefits were a cause for concern when she left GA. Number two, something I learned, two things. First thing I learned was I didn't know that Mickey was half Japanese. I knew she was Asian, but I was unsure what she was. And number two, I also learned that there was in the works a Revenge of the Nerds sequel. So it's probably for the best that didn't happen, but didn't know that. And then number three, thinking about skills development. And that's one of the reasons why I ask people like what skills they have to develop in each job. And so one of the things that Mickey talked about in her current role was that her flat side was selling. So remember, a flat side is something that you have chosen not to develop. Don't think of it as a weakness. So I went to Amazon to see if I could find a couple of resources that could help all of us who may struggle with um, being able to sell and ask for money. And I discovered a book and it is by Laura Fredericks. And the name of the book is called The Ass. Now there is an older version. The first version came out in 2009 and there is a newer version that is currently on pre-order. It hasn't been released yet, but it's coming out in October. So the original version had really great reviews on Amazon and probably why Laura is re-releasing it. If that's something that you would like to develop, there's a resource. Each episode, I like to dedicate a song to my guests. I am dedicating the non-Justin Bieber version of Despacito in Mickey's honor. We talked about that. That's one of our favorite songs. I like it. I actually have both versions, about both versions of it. The one with Justin Bieber and then the one without. If you want to listen to that song, you can go to the show notes. I will link to a version of that song on the show notes page. And then also I have a master Spotify playlist where I will add all of the songs that I dedicate to each guest. My final thing is I want to hear from you standouts. During the course of our conversation, Mickey mentioned that she has found that sports are a great way to relate to men. What I'd like to hear from you is which of your interests has helped you relate to others at work. So in 30 to 60 seconds, tell me a specific story of relating to someone over a common interest. How did you discover it and how it affected your working relationship with that person? Send your audio to podcast at notthestandout.club and then I'm going to compile some of the responses into a mini episode that I'll release at a later date. The email address as well as the show notes, which includes links to things we talked about, can be found at notthestandout.club forward slash one.